boy, I'm trying to think of where else I could get a 112% return on investment. Um, I mean, maybe right. if I invested in GameStop back in I would January. say maybe GameStop would <laughs> be about it. Bitcoin the stock only goes like up. According, according to Reddit, the stock will only ever go up. So... Um, <laughs> This is the Orientalist Express podcast, episode 29. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this podcast is to make American foreign policy interesting and easy to understand for those who don't follow it too closely. I'm Nicholas Hayen, founder of the Orientalist Express site and president of the board of directors for the Minnesota International NGO Network. I'm joined today in the virtual studio by special guest star, Alex Grant. Alex serves as the director of the Heartland Initiative at the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. USGLC is a nonprofit outreach organization that's dedicated to promoting the benefits of U.S. foreign policy and the federal international affairs budget, and showing how these programs benefit the average American. I should also note that I was recently welcomed into the USGLC's Next Gen Global Leaders Program, which provides leadership training and networking opportunities for the upcoming generation of foreign policy leaders. So be sure to check out their website at usglc.org to learn more about their excellent work. So Alex, tell me a little bit about yourself, the USGLC and the Heartland Initiative. Sure. Well, uh, Nick, thank you for having me with you here today. Always happy to talk about the work we're doing around the country and particularly the, the Heartland Initiative at the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. I, I've been with USGLC for about five years now. Uh, previously as the Deputy National Outreach Director overseeing our work around the country, uh, and earlier this year transitioned to Director of the Heartland Initiative. The Heartland Initiative started in 2017 when we saw a real rise in, in isolationism across the country, um, and we realized that we needed to do better to get out of urban areas to really talk to rural suburban communities about why international affairs is so critical to them. Uh, and more importantly, to hear from them why it's so critical. Uh, we want to create that two-way conversation, and that's been a part of a, a keystone of our, our Heartland initiative uh, that we've been doing across uh, the 12 states that we're operating in right now. USGLC, as you mentioned, we advocate for a small portion of the international affairs budget, 1% uh, of the federal budget. It's a tiny, tiny portion, uh, but it has an enormous impact. I know we're going to talk more about that uh, throughout the, the, the conversation today. So. I will turn back to you. Yeah, thanks. And I think that's that's fantastic. And one of the things that, um, you know, it's kind of the goal of this podcast as another goal that we have is to help translate those benefits and to see, you know, because like I can talk all day about, I understand why this stuff is important, you know, because I went to grad school for this in many respects. Uh, but it's really trying to translate those benefits to the everyday person who, who looks at all these things in the news and says like, you know, What's happening and where now? Who cares? Why does it impact to me? Well, but it does have an impact. And so that's why I'm really glad to, to have you with this conversation and to dive into that further. So um, so I guess in talking about the international affairs budget, because that's one thing that, you know, every year we have budgetary fights on Capitol Hill and everybody sees, you know, yeah. the gridlock and all the, oh, we're spending how much, where? Um, what are some of those key points that you think every person should know about the international affairs budget budget and and what does all that money support yeah you, you know it's, it's funny you say though about you going to grad school and, and studying this because i i did it I, I did a little bit of it um but my passion is in in promoting american leadership i've done some work around foreign policy 
but translating uh, foreign policy to domestic audiences is, is my uh, favorite thing to do. And you think about the international affairs budget, uh, as I said, it's 1%. It's $60 billion. The number sounds like a lot, but in reality, it's not a whole lot. Funds our State Department. Funds the U.S. Agency for International Development. It funds the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the Peace Corps, the Export-Import Bait, the U.S. Trade Development Agency. These are hallmarks of American foreign policy. They have a huge return on investment. They address global health needs in advance so that we can hopefully prevent a situation like we're in right now uh, in the future. You look at over the past you know, 20 years or so, global health programs have been a, a cornerstone of our American foreign policy, including the U.S. president's emergency plan for AIDS relief that was started under President Bush. It saved over 20 million lives. It's taken innovative tools of economic development. Um, it had been operationalized now by this U.S. International Development Finance Corporation that was started under the Trump administration. And these are just programs and agencies that are funded by the American uh, International Affairs Budget. They're advancing our nation's economic and national security interest. Uh, and it is all interconnected. Uh, it, it is not just humanitarian. It is not just economic. It is not just national security. They all interplay together. Uh, and it has a huge, huge impact on American communities and families in the heartland in particular. That's really interesting. And I, I definitely want to highlight when you say it's 1% of the budget. So in thinking of all the other things that are part of the international or that are part of the federal budget, you know, you've got, you've got your social security programs, you've got the entirety of defense, which is not part of that budget. But what really struck me is that that the State Department, the entirety of the State Department's operations were within that as well. So we spend a lot of money on defense, and understandably so, um, but such a small fraction of that, comparatively, is is the State Department and USAID and all of these other programs that you're talking about. So so all of that incorporates, incorporates just less than 1% of the federal budget, which is a lot different than what people usually think, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of people think it's a lot more than that. I think the, the polling usually shows that people think it's around 20, 25% of the federal budget, but it's not. And that's why you know, military veterans, generals are some of our biggest advocates because they understand um, that this is a national security argument. This helps prevent the need for military resources to be used in these regions uh, by investing in the front end. Um, and so it's interesting that uh, you mentioned the Defense Department and and and. We have over 203 and four-star generals and admirals that work with us in Washington, D.C. and around the country uh, to advocate for funding for the State Department um, because they know that's so critical. Um, so it, 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 there's not a competition between the two. They work hand in hand together. Of course, congressional priorities, you know, they tend to vary. Um, but this is something that is really important to veterans uh, and in addition to, to the economic uh, interest of the country and the humanitarian size of those NGOs. Yeah, I think the uh, the oft-repeated uh, quote, isn't it, from General Mattis that uh, you know, yeah. if you don't fund the State Department, I need to buy more bullets, is more bullets, is yeah. very <laughs> accurate in this regard. And um, and that's that's the thing, right? It's it's that return on investment where the more we're spending on on just general development and diplomacy and things like that, then hopefully the less we have to spend on on defense, strictly speaking, the less we have to spend mm -hmm. on bullets and guns and things like that. You know, if we can solve something diplomatically before a crisis even begins, then, you know, the, the return on investment is, is tremendous there. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think 
beyond national security, think about cultural exchange programs. You know, that was my first real introduction into foreign policy was a State Department exchange program with, with the Korean National Assembly and the U.S. Congress. Um, and the people that I met at that time that were around my age uh, have gone back and now they're leaders in the Korean government. Um, and these exchange programs create allies for the future. They create cooperation and relationships for the leadership of our country in the future uh, as well. So there's a huge impact there in terms of building up those relationships and making sure that uh, American leadership is is not just in the moment, but also looking ahead. Yeah. And I think that the cultural, the you know, soft power, as we call it, that type of uh that that type of of power and influence cannot be understated i mean just the fact that that so much of the world looks to the united states and and understands that culture and understands in many cases the language is really so so beneficial to what we want to do to try to you know make the world a, a safer place yeah it's, it's a really important tool our colleges and universities play a really important role uh, in all of our international affairs work, but especially in the, the cultural exchange portion, bringing students here, often contributing billions of dollars to the economy, um, and, and really just having an impact uh, in, in ways that we can't quantify uh, on a data level. Uh, and those are the things that, it, that when you talk about the international affairs budget, there's a lot of that where you can't quite quantify it, um, but you can see it. And, and, and that's a really... A difficult but important part about American foreign policy and the work that that we do at USGLC around the country. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you say um, you can't quantify it, but in some ways, you know, because you were speaking of um, of PEPFAR, that there are some ways that we can quantify it. So that kind of ties into um, thinking about what are some of the biggest successes of the international affairs budget. I mean, you you mentioned PEPFAR, which saved what twenty million lives, something to that effect. Yeah, twenty million lives, and now. Uh, it's been so successful now that countries that were recipients at one one time, uh, South Africa, for example, they're now taking on the financial responsibility of these programs because it's been successful in their country. They can continue it, which is the goal of a lot of our foreign policy is for it to not have to continue forever, especially for our development aid. Um, and you, you think, I mentioned South Korea. And South Korea was in economic collapse when, when the United States began uh, their foreign assistance program. Um, and that was after the Korean War, and now they are our sixth largest trading partner, a key ally today. Um, so we get now back every year in trade $50 billion with South Korea, uh, which is more than everything we've invested over five decades. So each year we're getting back more than we ever invested. Food security, uh, Feed the Future, that is an enormous program. More than 23 million people are now living above the poverty line. Three million children are nutritionally more secure uh, because of Feed the Future. And that's a program that universities around the country uh, have been working on in partnership with USAID. Uh, so there's, again, leveraging the domestic resources to help those abroad, but also returning that investment here at home. Uh, and Power Africa would be the last example that I would give. Since you know, 2013, Power Africa has helped generate 10,000 megawatts of electricity for Sub-Saharan Africa. It's leveraged $54 billion in private sector investment. Um, and that it just created countless jobs and opportunities for American companies. So all of these things, it, it feels like we're giving money away sometimes, but we're not. We're putting a little bit in to get a whole lot back. 
Yeah, and that's I think that's a very important point to to highlight is how it's not about creating dependency. It really is, you know, it's not a handout. It's a hand up essentially, right? Like, because we're trying to create these these conditions where where people in especially developing countries can be successful on their own, where they don't need that type of support anymore. And um, I mean, we find that a lot in in the international development scene where, you know, the irony of that you hope that one day your job is no longer needed because if you've done it correctly, then eventually some of these uh, problems are no longer problems anymore. Some of these countries like South Korea no longer need that type of assistance and then can then turn around and, and help support and lift those other countries out. So I mean, I think that's a very important part to, to highlight that, you know, kind of, as you said, in, in South Korea, now they're contributing more than we ever had to contribute to them. So that's, I think, a mm-hmm. tremendous success story there. Yeah, and Mark Green, former administrator of USAID, that was his mantra. You know, the goal of foreign aid is to end the need for foreign aid. Um, and that is, I think, a mantra that's shared with, with many development groups across the country that to your point, they want to work themselves out of a job. Exactly. So I guess maybe you could elaborate on how specifically do those foreign aid dollars work? How do they benefit people all over the world? And how does that money help people here at home? Sure. You know, uh, it's an interesting conversation that, that we often have here. Um, and ultimately, foreign assistance is an investment in our future. And, and that's how we look at this. Um you know, American diplomats, development agencies, they work to build open markets for businesses, create more jobs here at home, because 95% of the world consumers are living outside the United States. The top 10 fastest growing economies are in the developing world. Um, And quite simply, we can't afford to lose out on countries like China that are rapidly increasing their international investments um, by, by taking a step back. Um, and, and the critical support is just to some of the biggest challenges facing developing countries, hunger, uh, responding to natural, natural disasters, humanitarian crises. You know, look at the news. We need to tackle the root causes of migration in Central America. This is about creating an environment where Americans are secure, where people don't feel the need to flee their homes, um, you know, I don't think anyone ever wants to leave their home, travel across dangerous lands and and take a risk at entering a country that may not be welcoming. You know, that is something that that we have to think about the 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 human side of everything that we're we're looking at here. Um, and the foreign aid budget is really meant to prevent that from happening. You know, it's it's a uh, the flu shot in the fall that you get to try and prevent from getting the flu throughout the winter. Uh, this is something that we need to invest mm-hmm. in. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the ways that I I always look at it is, you know, it really creates a win for pretty much every party in the in the transaction that you can think of, right? Because one of the things that I've seen with a lot of the NGOs that I network with is, um, you know, they'll they'll use the international affairs budget. In many cases, they'll get these you know scholarships, grants, and things like that. And a lot of times, there's you know, certain conditions on those, like you have to use that fund, those funds within the United States or to provide certain goods and services from the United States or things like that. So some organizations will be looking to solve hunger problems in in Africa. And so what they'll do is they'll take that international affairs funding, they'll use that to purchase um, goods and services from local co-ops, from farmers here in the United States, send that 
um, aid package over to you know people in Africa, and then it's kind of a win for everyone, isn't it? Like the NGOs, they get to fulfill their mission and they get to use the people they have on the ground who already know how to do this best and have the connections there to make sure the aid gets to the people who need it. So they get a win there. American farmers and co-ops, they get a market for their goods and services. And then people in um, in developing countries, can they can get the food they need. They can get the services that they need to hopefully uplift themselves out of poverty. So it's really a win all the way around as far as I can see it. It, it is. I mean, you think about, I mentioned the U.S. Trade and Development Agency, which is an agency probably not many people know about. But for every dollar that they invest in overseas connections for American companies, it generates $112 in American exports. So for every wow. dollar, you get $112 back. That is a win-win. That is a definition of a win-win scenario. Yeah. I mean, 39 million American jobs are supported by trade. Um it, it, you're exactly right. This is this is not giving money away, getting money back, actually, in this scenario. Uh, but it's also just uh, it's a smart thing to do. This is a, a one of the favorite sayings of USGLC. It's not just the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do. Uh, and it, it's proven time and time again uh, that these investments are critical for American uh, consumers, companies, uh, and, and the community at large. Boy, I'm trying to think of where else I could get a 112% return on investment. Um, I mean, maybe right. if I invested in GameStop back in I would January. say maybe GameStop would <laughs> be about it. Bitcoin, the stock only you know, goes like up. According, according to Reddit, the stock will only ever go up. So, um, <laughs> yeah. But no, I think, I think you're right. Like, one of my favorite sayings now is like, the best outcomes happen when something is both the right thing to do and in someone's interest to do it. When you look at the situations that are happening across the world, for every dollar that we spend on prevention, we're saving $16 in response cost. That's a huge wow. impact as well when you start adding that up. So it, it really is it, the argument that isn't giving money away. Uh, it doesn't hold water. Um, there is far too much data. Uh, I mentioned earlier, there's not a whole lot of data on some of the anecdotal information, but there is a lot of data on the economic impact that return on investment. USAID specifically has started implementing the, um, you know, some more accountability measures and um, protocols to to ensure that aid is transparent and open. I mean, I know now like it's on, they have the websites where you can say specifically like, where is this money going? What programs it's going to? Things like that. And they have much more of a, a focus and emphasis on evaluation specifically, making sure that that this aid is actually working and doing what we want it to do and not, you know, just like we say, sending money out and hoping that something happens, but actually following up and making sure that that is working. Yeah. Transparency and effectiveness is something that USGLC has advocated for, for a number of years. It's really, really critical. Uh, and there have been enormous growth in that, 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 uh, sphere. I mean, when, when I started at USGLC trying to find out where money was going, uh, online with these maps and everything, uh, we couldn't find it. Uh, and now it's available online. You can go research it. You, you can see the connection point there. Um, so there's a lot of growth. There's still a lot more that can be done to improve transparency and effectiveness. Um, but that is something that is really critical, uh, I know, to the agencies and to groups like like the USGLC that uh, want to make sure that international affairs funding is strong, smart, strategic, and, and not being wasteful in any way, shape, or form. I mean, that's 1%. You can't waste that money. It's got to go to the right area. 
exactly. Is that um, the website? Is that foreignassistance.gov? Did I get that correct? Uh, I, I believe so. And then um, U.S. Trade Development Agency, they have kind of their their own import export bait on each of their websites. They also have uh, sub sites there where they they list uh, some of their recipients. Great. And I'll for the listeners, I'll link to some of that in uh, in the post online about that. So you can follow up there and see where your money's going. So I guess kind of thinking in really broad strokes, why why would you say American global leadership is is important just in general? You know, like you're saying there's an isolationist trend. Um, I've even seen billboards like U.S. out of the U.N. before, you know, driving up north in Minnesota. And at first that struck me like, why would anyone want to do that? But like, again, you know, I'm in that mindset of, you know, I, I know why I believe that this is important. So like, why can't we just bring all the troops home, leave the U.N. and close ourselves off from the rest of the world? You know, why why is American global leadership so important? That ongoing commitment to engagement in the world, that is just critical to advancing our national security interests, as I said, promoting our economic prosperity, leading with our values, because our economic future is directly tied to the recovery of emerging markets, um, especially after COVID-19. And they're gonna require US assistance to prevent future economic uh, collapse. Uh, More than 50%, I have a note here, more than 50% of US exports already went to the developing world before COVID-19 struck, but that progress has been set back. the challenges of poverty and hunger um, are now 270 million people facing acute hunger in the world. More than 80 million people are displaced from their homes around the world, a figure that has doubled since a decade ago. Uh, we can't afford to step back. It is, it is not in the interest of, of our country. As I said, it is the right thing to do, but also the smart thing to do, to step back from what is the largest humanitarian crisis since World War II. The, the value of when a major crisis in the world happens and everyone in the room looks to the United States, that value cannot be understated. And if we're not there at the table, you know, dictating the terms or, or at least guiding the terms of what's happening in that discussion, then yeah, other nations that don't share our interests like Russia or like China will, will do that. They're happy to do that. And they're trying to do that right now. You know, their, their seat at the table isn't going to benefit American businesses. They're not going to look out for for American corporations, for the American people, um, but presumably the federal government is. Right, right. You know, I, there was a, a gentleman in, in Nebraska, I believe, that talked about he was the, the youngest of 12, uh, and he compared for, uh, you know, foreign assistance and, and our international engagements to growing up in a family that large because it's like if I was five minutes late for dinner, there was no food left on my plate because my older brothers and sisters would eat it while I was gone. And I was like, you know, that's a really fair statement. If you're not there, someone else is going to take it. And, and it is simplistic, but it's exactly what we're talking about here. Um, and and that is the reality of the situation that we can't afford to not be there. Exactly. And I think what's what's problematic is you know, in the past few years, and I mean, even beyond, you know, we've seen America's standing in the world take a hit from various different things, not just, you know, from previous administrations, but, you know, instances like, um, like the war in Iraq was certainly unpopular internationally. Um, What could we do to help restore that image? You know, what, what, what opportunities do you see 
coming up in the next few years where we can we can really take the lead the United States can and say you know we're back in the world and we have everyone's broadly speaking everyone's interests at heart here yeah and, and you know this is a, a bipartisan issue right? you know really restoring American leadership reaffirming uh, America's leadership on the most global pressing challenges COVID-19 climate change responding preventing to urgent humanitarian issues um the most important thing we need to do is rebuild our alliances so with our, our closest partners, whether it's NATO, to the Quad in Asia, to our neighbors in Canada uh, and Mexico, and of course, investing in these civilian tools of development and diplomacy that have an outsized impact, demonstrate our support for our partners in the developing world, uh, and have that return on investment at home. And what we need people to do is to have these conversations like you and I are having right now to have a conversation with your family, friends, your members of Congress, they really need to hear from their constituents about why these matter to their community uh, and to tell those stories. You know, I, there are so many incredible organizations across the country that are doing work that has an outsized impact on the world from small communities to large, um, but their story isn't told very often. Uh, and some of that is because they're, they're, they're humble. Uh, and they want to make sure that um, they aren't you know, showing off or anything. But members yeah. of Congress in particular, they got to know what is happening in their backyard. And it's really important when it comes to, to the legislative side to know that um, cuts to that would impact their community. Yeah, in both in both ways that are, you know, tangible, like certain organizations would just cease to function without the international affairs budget. But, you know, then the intangibles, too, of of um, corporations trying to expand overseas and, and bring more jobs here and abroad, you know, that, that gets stifled by, you know, when we withdraw from the world. Um, I guess I look at, you know, in thinking about what we can really do to help restore that image, I wonder the extent to which, you know, the, the pandemic response can really be an opportunity for the United States to, to break out again and to say, like, we have the world's interest at heart. I mean, because we are... You know, we're very quickly vaccinating here in the United States, but we're also, are we not stockpiling large amounts of vaccine to send to the rest of the world to you know, help get those countries back into full economic production and then to also just prevent the spread of or the creation and spread of new, even more dangerous variants? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, COVID-19 has changed a lot of things and it created a lot of opportunity for, for America to to regain that mantle as a leader. Um, the most important thing is that uh, when it comes to vaccines, Americans are taken care of, that everyone has access that wants a vaccine can get a vaccine. Um, but we also have to think about the developing world and we have to think about the impact of those communities because as we saw, it, it doesn't matter if everyone here is vaccinated, if another country is impacted as devastatingly as the world has been over the past year, uh, it's going to have a ripple effect. You know, we're talking potentially trillions of dollars of impact on the global economy if we don't properly vaccinate the developing world. Um, and this is also comes into our, our, our competition with China, with other countries as well that are also doing vaccine diplomacy in these regions. Um, and, and this is just a really critical time in our country's history to regain, regain that mantle of leadership. Um, but also, again, recognizing that not just the right thing to do, it's a smart thing to do because when we invest in those countries, we are investing in American companies and American communities. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've seen what happened, you know, with uh, all these variants coming out, especially, you know, from Brazil, like they have a tremendous outbreak and, um, you know, new, potentially even worse variants of the virus are coming out of there. And the longer that we wait on this and the longer that we just allow the continued rampant spread of the virus in other parts of the country, the greater the chances of of some very, very serious variant developing, something that could even potentially evade vaccine efficiency. And then we're right back at square one again. Yeah, you know, um, so the USGLC did something this year that we've never done before, which is we created a, a needs assessment on funding that will be needed to address the ongoing global crisis around COVID-19. And, and that's investing in preparedness for future pandemics, responding to the new variants, uh, the global health humanitarian crisis, uh, bolstering our competitiveness. And we found that at least $14 billion is needed in new funding uh, to ensure that the recovery effort happens on a global scale and happens properly. Uh, I'll send you uh, the link to the full needs assessment that you can include for, uh, for your listeners there. Uh, but the, the resources that we're identifying here represent less than 0.3% of the total federal spending. Uh, but this will have a drastic impact um, on American families. A couple of areas that I mentioned earlier that we're focusing on investing in pandemic preparedness, not only to stop COVID-19, but to be able to stop new variants of those before they really emerge uh, and new pandemics before they emerge. Um, and, and also bolstering American economic competitiveness to help countries on their journey to self-reliance. I mentioned earlier that the job is to end the need for the job um, and create that long-term security and economic partners for America. This is a time where we have to step up. We have to do what's right. We have to do this investment to make sure that everyone is lifted up and that Americans can take advantage of that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. $14 billion, right? Yeah. That's of additional yeah. funds. So $60 yeah. billion is where we're at yeah. right now. We're at, we think our needs assessment says that $14 billion additional funds. Again, sounds like a big number, but in terms of the federal budget, it, it, yeah, it's yeah, I mean, we just amount. We just passed $2 trillion. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, $14 billion, you know, seems like kind of a drop, drop in the bucket, comparatively speaking, to like to help bring the entire world back on its feet. Like, that's. Uh, seems like we're right. going to make a lot more than $14 billion um, if we right. do that as a return on investment. Right. And, and it, it's something that has to happen. If we, if we, don't, if we don't invest properly, uh, the recovery effort is going to take even longer. Um, and I don't think any American can afford for the recovery effort to take longer <laughs> than it is. You know, we, yeah. I think we're, we're all ready to go back to normal uh, as quickly as possible. Um, and this investment is something that we found is going to be really critical to making sure that happens. Excellent. That's, that's really good that you guys put that together. I'll definitely include that for the listeners in our, in our links. Um, I guess that kind of ties us all into the ultimate question. So, you know, in this hyper-partisan time, you know, is there bipartisan support for something like this? I mean, it's a lot of money and, you know, Congress can agree on almost nothing, oftentimes nothing at all. Um, is there enough bipartisan support for that type of thing? And, know, if, I, and if not, how do we get it? You know, for, for the needs assessment, it remains to be seen, you know, that, that when we see the president's budget 
uh, released. By the time this is uh, released, it may have come out, and we'll, we'll have a better sense at that point. But there's a there's a strong legacy of bipartisan support support in Congress from both Democrats and Republican administrations for the international affairs budget. Uh, you know, since 9-11, U.S. national security strategies, they've recognized the importance of a whole-of-government approach, including both the military and civilian tools. Um, and over the past few years, members of Congress, from the Freedom Caucus to the Progressive Caucus, have spoken out on the importance of strong funding for development and diplomacy programs, because they recognize it's, it's not it's not just important for our national security, but as we've said over and over again, it has a significant return on investment for our economies and our communities here at home. And the most important part of this is not just that it's bipartisan in Congress, but it's bipartisan across the country as well. You know, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs found that 68% of Americans maintained that the U.S. should take an active part in world affairs, and 84% agree that international cooperation is the only way to solve large global challenges. And another poll from Morning Consult found that 85% of voters think that it's important for the United States to lead the world in responding to global infectious diseases. So in order to continue this legacy of bipartisanship, those Americans who believe that this is important need to speak out. Members of Congress, they work for us. And it is up to the constituents to share that story, share that support, and make sure that their members of Congress are voting uh, for the interest of their communities by supporting this international affairs budget. Um, so that is how it continues. And it is just the, the impact from Republican and administration in, and Democratic administration initiatives has been um, just absolutely remarkable. Uh, and we talked about PEPFAR earlier, but... The amount of people, 20 million people that have been saved by PEPFAR, think about the number of people around them, the families, you know, multiply that times five. The number of people that have been impacted by that investment is, is just hard to truly comprehend. Um, and the weird thing is not many Americans know about it. <laughs> yeah, This is a hallmark of American foreign policy, quite frankly, right now, and, and not many people know about it. Um, but if you were to go there, if you were to go to Africa and see some of the areas where we've invested in, um, it has been a lifesaver uh, and, and it has created a lifetime of, of um, appreciation and, and a relationship that can't be broken. Yeah. And that's, I think that's so much of what we want to do is to, to highlight those, especially those success stories. I mean, who, who knew, you know, prior to this to this uh, discussion that, you know, 20 million people were saved just by, you know, an AIDS program in Africa signed, you know, started by President Bush. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's a tremendous accomplishment. And I, I don't know the monetary figures, but I can't imagine it was all that much money to, to get that off the ground and to get it going. No, I mean, it's included in that 1%. It's not a, yeah. not a whole lot of money. Um, you know, the Peace score is 1% of the 1%. So, <laughs> uh, and, and so PEPFAR is less than that. So, uh, these are these are programs that the return on investment is it, just it's truly remarkable, um, and uh, it, it can't be stated enough how, how important it is to continue it. I'm definitely a fan of of the work of the USGLC, and hopefully a lot of my listeners are now too. Um, I mean, you guys do tremendous work, you know, year after year, talking to to all the right people, you know, to to major corporations and 
and international NGO organizations and members of Congress, you know, to try to get this word out there to, to show why it's so important and, and ultimately to to know why we should care so much about what happens in other countries. Because a lot of the times that, that information gets buried in, in the leads that you see, you know, you see this horrible thing happened in Syria and it becomes it becomes so overwhelming that we miss some of these success stories and we start to, to forget why the United States should be leading the way it is. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's tremendous what you guys are doing. Well, thank you. And, and, and it really, you know, our success is reliant on partnerships like the one you have with, with your organization, with organizations around the country, um, because you know, we can do all we, we want, but, but we're not from there. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important that, that the people that are in the state are the ones that are really talking about this, having the conversation uh, and sharing those stories. Um, because it, it doesn't matter what I think as someone who is based in Washington, D.C., quite frankly, to a member of Congress from Minnesota. It's a, it's a nice thought that I might have. Uh, but for you to go talk about it, that means a lot. Um, and the more we can do that, the better. That's why so many companies, you mentioned, uh, you know, 500 companies that are a member of our coalition, NGOs, faith-based organizations, um, you know, we're called the Strange Bent Bell of Coalition for that reason. <laughs> Um, and it's because we all know this is the right thing to do. Uh, and we all know that it takes cooperation on a domestic and global level to make sure that it's happening properly. So thank you for all the work that you all are doing out there. And, and, uh, if any of your listeners are interested in learning more about USGLC, I'm sure you'll, uh, link to our website, usglc.org, uh, on there. They can uh, always reach out to me. My, my information is available online as well. And I really appreciate the conversation today, Nick. Definitely. Got to gotta get outside the beltway, right? Always. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only way I can stay sane, you know? Yeah. <laughs> really, we want to be here as a partner uh, for any organization that wants to engage with us. Um, again, we, we work with corporations, NGOs, universities, what have you. Uh, we have an advisory committee in the state, which a number of folks that are engaged with, and of course, our next-gen leadership uh, council that you are a member of that uh, we are really excited about that we launched this year. Um, so some really great initiatives, a lot of opportunity to get engaged. Uh, but if nothing else, I uh, hope you take away that you don't have to be a member of an organization like ours to talk to your member of Congress and to share why you think this is important. Um, and I hope that everyone will take that away um, and go out there, talk to their member, share their support. Um, and this time right now is really critical to do so as we wait for the budget proposal for FY22 to come out. Um, so this is the time to do it for sure. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to once again thank my special guest Alex for joining today's show and I want to say an extra thank you to the USGLC for all of their work in promoting American global leadership and for putting me on the Next Gen Global Leaders program. Uh, Thanks, of course, as always, to our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at orientalistexp. And go check out the USGLC website at usglc.org as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.